Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ communities, this is Well, 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 brought to you every week by Thorn Harbour Health. Here on Well, 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 we delve into the issues impacting and surrounding the health and well-being of our gender, sex and sexually diverse communities. Coming to you from Joy's Victorian Pride Centre Studios on Boonwurrung Country, I'm your host, Jack Ranjanan, uh, in studio with Adrian Hadjalexio. And uh, we're now joined on the phone uh, by Nick Hollis, the founder of the Institute of Many, Australia's largest grassroots movement for uh, people living with HIV. Nick, thank you so much for your time. Can, I guess to start with, can you tell us a bit about what the Institute of Many is? Sure. Uh, well, the Institute of Many, or TIM for short, uh, it's, as you said, it's a grassroots movement for people living with HIV. Uh, what that looks like is really dependent on, on what your needs are. Um, so we run an online community space uh, via Facebook uh, for uh, anyone living with HIV can join, they can get peer support, they can ask questions, they can find out news from the broader HIV sector, uh, ask each other questions and get support. Uh, then we also have Tim Women, which is a online space for anyone who identifies as a woman living with HIV. And we also have uh, Tim Families, which is a smaller space for folks uh, who are, um, are HIV positive and thinking about having kids or have had kids or are born with HIV themselves, um, including the partners of HIV positive parents uh, who are co-parenting and raising kids together. That's fantastic. How did Tim come about in the first place? Long story now. Um, that's because we're about to enter our 10th year at the end of this year, which uh, feels uh, wild to me. I, I still feel like that Tim is the new kid on the block and I feel like I myself have only been living with HIV for a hot minute. But uh, uh, this October, um, I will mark 10 years uh, of living with HIV. Um, and that's really the beginning process of Tim. Um, I met our co-founder, Jeff Lang, uh, at a Genesis workshop, uh, which is the uh, workshop for newly diagnosed people living with HIV that was run in Sydney. I was living in Sydney at the time, um, very similar to the Phoenix workshops that Living Positive Victoria put on. Uh, and we hit it off. Uh, we looked around the room and realised that there were other people living with HIV in that, uh, at that workshop who had closed themselves off from life for over two years, some of them. It took people 24 months to just come to a newly diagnosed workshop. But in that time, they hadn't been on a date. They hadn't disclosed to their families that their, their, the stigma and shame around their HIV diagnosis had shuttered them off from the world. And Jeff and I were look, very privileged and, and feeling um, relatively okay about it. So we decided to create an, uh, uh, a movement, a support space, whatever you want to call it, for people living in HIV. And it's been a wild ride since then. So I, I guess that's how it started. Um, you said that it's it's a community space, I suppose. Um, but what else does Tim, I guess, do in the space? We've done a lot over the years. Uh, you know, obviously the, the, the Tim groups, the online spaces, uh, I would say is probably our, our most enduring and significant um, contribution back to the community that we serve. But 
uh, over the years, you know, we, we ran the first national U equals U campaign uh, a few years back uh, with some videos featuring people living with HIV, people at risk of HIV on PrEP or, or, or about to go on PrEP or not on PrEP, um, talking about what U equals U means to them. And obviously for your listeners that probably don't need to tell the well, well, well audience that U equals U means undetectable equals untransmittable, which means that if you're a person living with HIV on effective treatment, you have zero risk of passing HIV on. Uh, as you can tell, that campaign still burned into my brain. I'm still ready to give that talking point at any given moment. Um, uh, we have also done harm reduction resources uh, in a really heightened uh, time uh, several years ago, uh, the conversation nationally around uh, people who choose to use crystal methamphetamine was really heightened. And we know that um, not all people living with HIV, of course, uh, choose to use recreational drugs, but we do know that we skew higher uh, as a demographic on people who choose to use drugs. So we created a harm reduction resource called Turning Tina. Uh, we've done other campaigns uh, and lots of other uh, advocacy and media facing work, working behind the scenes or going outwards with media strategies to change the way Australia talks about HIV, but most importantly, change the way that people living with HIV feel about themselves. Wow, that's a lot of work over that time. I mean, Tim's been going for 10 years, so a great deal must have changed during all of that. What does that look like? So much. Yeah, across that whole period. Yeah, look, uh, like, uh, I always like to say that, that um, co-founding Tim cost me this little sliver of my soul that will never get back, that I'll never get back, um, which makes it sound like I've put a Horcrux into it, not to put a uh, transphobic <laughs> Harry Potter reference onto a queer wellness and health show. Apologies to anyone out there listening. Um, but uh, the Tim community has changed so much. I remember when we first started, uh, PrEP wasn't around yet. Uh, the, uh, the, the, secu the secure knowledge that U equals U meant zero risk of passing HIV on wasn't actually fully scientifically established. I think we as a community felt it and knew it, but none of us fully believed it and we didn't have the results of the various international studies yet that unequivocally proved that to be true. So there was a lot of work to do, uh, you know, sharing this good news message uh, with the community and getting us all kind of to, I guess, um, update how we think and feel about living with HIV um, in the, the 21st century. Uh, but in order to do that, it, it did require and continues to require um, people living with HIV and people at risk of HIV uh, to let go of a lot of uh, their, HIV, uh, their HIV fears, their HIV um, uh, trauma. Uh, but of course, that's not something that's done easily and acknowledging that there will always be people in our community for whom uh, their life, you know, a, a life of living with HIV has been incredibly difficult. Uh, it doesn't matter if you were diagnosed with it in, you know, 1985 or 2015 or, or whenever. Uh, we acknowledge that HIV uh, has had a huge impact on our lives. Um, but I'm really proud to, to see the way that the Tim community uh, has evolved uh, into a place in which people really take care of one another. Uh, back in the day, me and the moderators would have to be online all the time monitoring conversations to make sure things didn't escalate and get out of control. And these days, it's really beautiful to see that, by and large, the gym community takes care of each other uh, and um, is there for one another. It's really beautiful to see. I guess, what would you attribute that that change of tone to around, because, um, I mean, you mentioned some of the, the, the lived experience contributing to, I guess, some of the trauma and the response to, um, uh, like, 
I mean, a, a community that voices thoughts and feelings on a Facebook page, right? Um, to, to have gone from such an active moderation role to now such a positive, I mean, forgive the pun, positive community, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. like, why do you think that shift happened over, over the last 10 years? Uh, well, I think that the, the, the people who chose to stay in Tim uh, uh, recognize it for what it is. And look, for some people, it's just a Facebook group that they're a member of and they've been a member of for years and they get the information they need and they jump out again and they jump back in when they doctor wants to change treatment. So they've got a question around, you know, disclosure laws or dentist or tattoos or travel insurance and stuff. But, um, uh, but for other people, it's been a, a, a bit of a lifeline and a, and a powerful community for them to engage in. And so the reason that the Tim community, I think, has, has evolved into a, a, a place of being uh, relatively, you know, we still, of course, still have conflicts. Conflict is healthy and natural. Um, but a place where people are supportive of one another is because, you know, thousands of Tim members over the years have recognised its value and have contributed to that culture. Um, uh, and people people leave. Sometimes they, they leave in a huff because they realise it's not the place for them, but they come back. Um, and more than that, uh, people graduate. I like to think of people graduating from Tim um, that, that they realise that their HIV no longer has to be this central part of their identity um, and they've got the tools they need to, to incorporate into their life and to have a great quality of life. Um, and they come back when they need it. Much like uh, Tim has changed a, a lot in the last 10 years, the response to HIV has changed uh, quite a fair bit over the last four decades. Uh, are we closer, do you feel, to um, ending HIV transmission? Oh, we're so close. It feels like we're so close. Um, and that's because we've got the tools that we need to do it. You know, we've got uh, effective HIV treatments. In, in this country are now subsidised and, and fully subsidised um, for even medically ineligible people, which I, I think we're getting to in a minute. But uh, we've got the tools we need to do it. Now we just need uh, some some more targeted uh, campaigns and some more targeted services and programs uh, to reach those people who haven't always been a priority. And that's partly been because uh, for decades, you know, Australian-born gay and bisexual men have been the largest cohort of new HIV diagnoses and, and the largest cohort of people living with HIV in this country. Uh, we still are that, but the numbers are go going down uh, dramatically year to year. Uh, and now what that's actually revealed these populations and communities that have always been there, that have always been at risk, high risk of contracting HIV and have been contracting HIV at a higher rate than the general population. Uh, but now... We're realising that we that that our kind of one size fits all message um, or services or programs uh, to to end HIV isn't going to work. Uh, we can't just take what we the messages or or, um, or programs that we developed uh, to target Australian-born gay and bisexual men. We need separate um, separate things for uh, overseas-born uh, men of sex with men, uh, Indigenous Australians, and of course the heterosexual community. And that last one is, is one of the trickier ones because you can't just do a campaign for all heterosexual of people of, of, of sexual age in Australia, right? So we've got some uh, um, interesting problems to solve, but we're really, really close to ending new HIV transmissions in Australia. We, we can do it by 2025 even if we want to.
One of the things you just mentioned a bit earlier was uh, Medicare ineligibles and their access to treatment. Uh, we know that from July 1st, Medicare ineligibles are going to have access to treatment, subsidized treatment. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? This is so amazing and, and really is down to decades and decades of work by organisations like NAPWA, the National Association of People with um, you know, HIV AIDS Australia, and so many other uh, individuals and community groups over the years because, um, as we've always known from the very, very beginning of, of the AIDS crisis um, and the HIV response here in Australia, that HIV has no respect for citizenship. It has no respect for borders. Um, and if, any, if anyone in our community is living with HIV, especially if they've uh, recently contracted HIV or are undiagnosed, um, then, you know, th there is a risk of them passing that on to other people. Um, and it doesn't matter what your, doesn't matter what passport you carry. Um, it's, it's, it's really obvious public health. <laughs> it's really obvious public health information. Um, but it's taken the government, successive governments, many years to get on board with the idea. And it's just going to be so, so important. Um, you know, I know that overseas born people in this country, uh, already, they already have a lot of visa insecurity um, and migration anxiety. Uh, and we know that uh, many people assume uh, that if they uh, diagnose HIV positive while they're here, they'll be kicked out of the country, which isn't true. Um, but it is unfortunately true that it will have a, a significant bearing on their ability to get permanent residency if they, if they were planning on staying after studying or, or, or working through to get a, a permanent visa. Um, and that needs to change. But the fact that we can at least now get them onto treatment right away, so they're not passing it on to anyone else, and they're going to be know they're going to be living a long, healthy life, is so 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 important. It's really great that it's here. In the same way as making HIV treatment available to Medicare and eligibles, I mean, you spoke a little bit there around it being more difficult for, um, say, uh, overseas students to uh, get permanent residency if if they. Um, uh, are, are HIV positive in, in the time they are here. Um, I guess, what other changes do you feel the government or, or community groups or um, advocacy uh, organisations, what, what more changes do you think need to, to be seen um, to really kind of improve on or, or really minimise uh, HIV stigma and discrimination? It's a, it, it, I mean, yeah, how long have you got? But, uh, <laughs> but um, definitely that stuff around, um, around migration anxiety, uh, which involves the federal government changing its kind of health waiver rules and, and its um, visa exclusion rules um, to acknowledge that, uh, you know, it, but what it comes down to is the government is not willing to provide someone some sort of residency or citizenship because in their mind, it will cost them too much money because the thought of having to pay for that person's HIV treatments for the rest of their life uh, makes them quote unquote too expensive um, and not a um, desirable um, uh, candidate for permanent residency or citizenship, which is a real shame. Um, so that's, that's one sort of thing. But then in that you've got to unlock a whole bunch of complex um, uh, kind of racist stuff in there around migration and visas that go beyond HIV. And that's, Similar to, you know, in, in other communities and cohorts that we're seeing, you know, how do we, uh, it would be an incredible shame if we just kind of throw uh, rates of HIV 
um, new diagnoses on the pile of 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 the indigenous health crisis, and you know, and just add it as a kind of closing the gap thing and, and acknowledging within that, you know, so much uh, systemic racism uh, from colonization. Uh, it has a, has a role to play um, in in HIV rates in um, indigenous communities, um, and the solution to all of these things. Same with women, uh, whether you're Australian-born or, or an overseas-born women with, living with HIV. Um, the solution, I think, is uh, uh, shifting the way we deliver programs. Um, it's thinking about ways that the historic HIV AIDS organisations, which have you know rebranded a lot recently as LGBT organize, health organisations, like the great people at Thornhaber Health, um, it's about thinking how we can either, I think, create uh, specific uh, whether organisations or projects or teams um, so that the response to HIV in these communities can be led by those same communities, which is, of course, the extraordinary story of the HIV response to this date in Australia, that, that queer people um, stepped up and created the systems and structures that we needed to keep ourselves safe. Uh, we need now to think about ways that we can either get out of the way um, or uh, work with uh, people so that they can self-determine and design the health responses that they need for their communities. So, Nick, this week is National Blood Donors Week. Um, as you know, gay and bi men who have sex with men have uh, specific restrictions around their eligibility to donate blood due to HIV uh, transmission risk. Um, I, I guess, what are your thoughts on the current restrictions on blood donations? Uh, I think that... Uh, I think that for uh, for gay and bisexual men uh, who see that they are unable to to donate blood in this country without um, you know without abstaining from sex for three months, it feels it feels really unfair. It feels like an extreme form of discrimination, um, and that's not untrue. Um, it it is discriminatory. Um, it's a discrimination based around um, uh, progressing uh, public health. Um, advice and thinking um, and it's but more than that it's set against the, the, the bigger backdrop I think of the grand cosmic unfairness of HIV's impact on our community full stop um, and so I, I always try and um, keep that in mind uh, when discussing um, changes to uh, blood donation for gay and bisexual men uh, because I uh, because I don't actually think that the, the way for us uh, to fix this is to allow a certain type of gay and bisexual man to donate blood. I think that the best way for us to do it is to end new HIV transmissions in this country so that anyone uh, who's HIV negative can can give blood. Uh, how do you think these discussions which are happening like uh, on in the media at the moment are affecting people living with HIV? Um, I, I, I could only really speak for myself, uh, but I find them, uh, to be honest, I find them um, uh, a bit upsetting uh, and uh, kind of offensive, uh, if I'm completely frank with you both. Um, it's, it's upsetting to me to see a uh, minority cohort of monogamous, largely monogamous, um, uh, uh, gay men um, pushing for these reforms uh, before we've completed the what I think is a much more important task of ending new HIV transmissions and improving the quality of life for people living with HIV by reducing stigma 
Um, I think it's something like only uh, 15% of gay and bi men uh, here in Victoria who have responded to the gay periodic survey who are monogamous. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, when we look at the models of, of, um, of how we can relax um, the blood donation limitations, uh, if we look at the Canadian model, for example, it really is only monogamous gay men and bi men who would be able to donate. Uh, and I, and I, I'm not really sure that that's uh, where we need to be going. Um, I think I, I wouldn't say this of anyone who is passionate about this issue or who cares about it, because I know many, many people do. But I really do think that at the heart of this issue and the people really driving it uh, have a lot of unexplored, internalised um, uh, 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 serophobia and stigma um, and resent uh, the kind of multi-generation association of being associated with HIV. They think it's dirty. Um, and I think that it's a real shame that um, they're trying to force governments and, and blood banks, et cetera, to change this policy um, before... Uh, we need to. There have been calls to have people uh, disclose their risk of HIV when wanting to donate blood. In, in regards to heterosexual cisgender donors, um, in, in your view, is it likely they will disclose if they're at risk of having HIV? Um, do these cohorts have good awareness of HIV um, risk and, and prevention in your view? I mean, generally speaking, uh, I, I think not. I, I think that, you know, and, and we can see that that's evidence in, in the fact that many people still consider HIV to be exclusively uh, a disease of gay and bisexual men, completely excluding the fact, of course, that, that, that trans women uh, have just as high, if not higher risk of contracting HIV. Um, and, you know, we, we, we see the, the frequency of heterosexual cisgender women realising that they are HIV positive, you know, at the point of prenatal testing when, um, you know, when a HIV test is a routine part of um, prenatal pregnancy testing. So absolutely not. I, I think that most heterosexual people in this country assume that they are at low risk of HIV. Um, and I don't know that just kind of asking some general questionnaires uh, so that a certain cohort of gay men um, uh, don't have their feelings hurt. So as you said, like people are assuming they're at low risk. Uh, do you think that the risk donations from groups who are different or similar to men who have sex with men, uh, do you think the risk is similar or, or equivalent or lower? Well, I mean, this is, this is the really like uh, heartbreaking stuff about the science and, and stats around uh, blood donation and our community. Uh, like what, when the, when the, the TGA and Lifeblood, et cetera, are talking about risk. They are talking about the risk of prevalence amongst an entire community, not necessarily the individual risks um, associated with individual actions. Although, of course, we do know um, that uh, the types of sex uh, that gay and bisexual men have, i.e. you know, anal intercourse, there is, of course, a higher risk of um, of that acknowledging of course that heterosexual cisgender people have anal intercourse as well um so so that's that's firstly part of the problem um and then when we talk about the actual risk of of hiv positive blood um which will highly in 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 all likelihood um be uh undiagnosed uh from from an undiagnosed person i should say uh, meaning that there's much likely chance for it to be um, 
have a much higher viral load count in it, um, which makes it even more infectious. Um, you know, it is uh, uh, way, it's much more likely for someone to acquire HIV from being exposed to blood viral blood transmission than it is through sex even. So there are still a lot of risk factors at play. And, you know, on top of that, there's other, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of other stuff there as well about the models being put forward that are really problematic for our community too. There have been changes in other countries for blood donor eligibility um, for men who have sex with men. I mean, you mentioned Canada earlier, um, in, I believe in April of this year. Um, I, what are some of the, the broader impacts um, of, of these changes in your measure? Yeah, look, the, the Canadian model is, I think, a really great example of, of how um, uh, undue pressure from certain parts of the gay community onto the government can result in changes that actually are going to end up being potentially harmful um, because Canada has decided that no one on PrEP uh, can uh, donate blood. Um, there's a scientific reason for that. It's not just because they don't like um, people on PrEP. Uh, it's because uh, the presence of PrEP in the bloodstream can impact the sensitivity of tests and, and make tests unreliable. Um, so, unfortunately, at this stage, um, uh, anyone who on PrEP can't don. And on, uh, in addition to that, uh, if, if you as an HIV-negative person wants to give blood, but you have had sex with a person living with HIV recently, you are also excluded from donating. Um, and makes absolutely no distinction there or mention of, of U equals U having an undetectable viral load. There's zero risk involved in that. Um, it just lumps all people living with HIV in, in one space. And both of those things send the exact opposite message that we are desperately trying to get out even wider to our community. We need more HIV negative people on PrEP and we need a greater appreciation and understanding that the vast majority of people in Canada and in Australia are on effective treatment and can't pass it on. And these reforms actually do the exact opposite of that. Um, and if, if that's not something that's going to potentially wind back the progress that we're making, I, I don't know what is. And it's sort of, um, it's very frustrating for me as someone who's dedicated, you know, years of our life, my life to um, improving the lives of people with HIV and helping end new transmissions to see people from my own community willingly throw that good work potentially under the bus um, so that they can give blood. I, I, I don't understand where it comes from, aside from a, a uh, feeling of, of disliking being associated with HIV. Um, and that's, that's upsetting to me as a person with HIV, but my feelings aren't what matters here. What matters is that it's going to potentially have a negative impact on the fight to end HIV, and that's inexcusable. Nick Hollis, founder of the Institute of Many. Uh, thank you so much for joining us to discuss uh, National Blood Donors Week uh, and, and giving us an update on everything from Tim. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 your show for LGBTIQ health and well-being, presented by Joy Sponsor, Thorn Harbour Health. For more on these topics and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy.